This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. 200 BC on the north coast of modern day British Columbia. The waters lapped against the shoreline of an inland passage as the young fisherman pulled his canoe onto land. The sun was beginning to dim beyond the winding mountains towards the Pacific Ocean. He settled with his things, gathered wood, and prepared his fire. But as he went to strike his flint, he felt an ominous feeling wash over him. He knew he was being watched. His gaze rose slowly towards the tree line, meeting with a pair of dark eyes. The man froze, stunned with a feeling he did not understand. He quickly snapped out of his trance and made a break for his canoe. The creature then stepped into the remaining light, towering over nine feet tall, and let out a bellowing scream. Nestled deep into the ancient red cedars and dense underbrush of the Great Bear Rainforest, dwell creatures whom the various First Nations peoples of British Columbia's north coast, among other locales, have known of for thousands of years to exist amongst them. The forest giants known as Sasquatch. This week on Into the Portal, we take a closer look at the ancient past of this creature, some indigenous tales, historical accounts, and even locales where Sasquatch is said to dwell in modern times. into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with part two of our strange Sasquatch encounters. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting that we're doing this two-week thing, and it's like I'm itching to get at it, and then it's like, oh wait, we have to wait another week, but here we are. We're back. <laughs> we have to wait another week. <laughs> well, we need the other week, let's be we clear. We did. We yes. really did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, stoked to be back. Before we get right into it, though, we have some shout-outs to make because uh, we had some new members join our Patreon community in the last little bit, which has been amazing. Yeah. So awesome. So big so thanks cool. and a shout-out to Alan T, actually from Calgary. So just right next door to us here in BC. Woo-hoo! Love that. So nice rhyme there. Alan um, T from Calgary. Alan mm-hmm. T from Calgary. And then also Justin Smith, who joined us as an ancient explorer a very prestigious tier indeed. Ooh, two um, ancient explorers. I know, nice. really exciting. Uh, also, shout out to Corey C, who joined us as a paranormal scholar. So he's getting our awesome mini-sodes. And then mm. also Travis P over in Arizona, who joined us uh, in the, under the ranks of Curious Creature. So Aww. super stoked on all of this. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. That's and shout really, out, shout outs to all y'all. Really, really cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely pumped on that. (laughs) And then we definitely wanted to just kind of run down through some of the points that were worth touching on again from part one, because we definitely jumped around a lot in part one. Kind of, yeah. You know, like we started off, it's kind of funny, like this part two is almost what part one, they're a little out of order in a sense, but we were so enthralled and fascinated with the violent attacks 
because we're kind of more familiar with Sasquatch already being from BC and having talked about it a lot with people in the paranormal community and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So we went that way to start it off. Like we were in Ohio, we were talking in BC, Washington state with um, Ape Canyon, Florida swamp attacks, marked hominids on the East coast in Michigan and Ontario. So today we're trying to kind of tie it together a little bit more and speculate on what these things are getting into more of that in part three, two into our theories and stuff. But we are focusing more on the North Pacific coast today, mm-hmm. although we do do some uh, back and forth, but we're definitely, we're, we're, we're tightening it up here for y'all for yeah. sure. So in terms of indigenous history in episode one, part one, we touched briefly on kind of the Micmac East coast. We went way back to the 1600s and mm-hmm. some of their references to hairy giants in the forest. Yep. We talked about the Skookum cast which was an early 2000s piece of evidence that the Smithsonian outright refused to look at. And we talked about that a little bit too. Like they had people volunteering to drive this cast clear across the country and no one on their end would look at it. It's pretty absurd when you think about it, right? It's the opposite of science. Well, it just shows how (laughs) politics and subjective opinions and people's staunchly held beliefs can trump what might be a great scientific discovery, Yeah, which is really frustrating. It's, yeah, totally. And it's funny, actually, I was, well, I mentioned this to you, but like I was reading an article the other day in preparation for this part two, and it was from Smithsonian, and it literally started off, like I didn't pull it up here quote word for word but it was something along the lines of like like we know that sasquatch doesn't exist but Mm -hmm. if it did here's what it could have been or whatever and it was like an article about gigantopithecus right and they made the comment too that it might have at one point existed but not anymore (laughs) and we know this like we definitively know this because whoever wrote that article Hmm. bought a tent went and spent a year in the middle of nowhere in northern british club like no no just just no just you need more than a tent (laughs) <laughs> All, yeah. All I'm saying is have a little bit more of an open mind, people. You so, know what I mean? All right. That's yeah. That's a nice little overview there. Mm-hmm. What are we getting into for part two today? So what's in store for part two is a closer look at some indigenous origins of this creature. Cool. Some more evidence presented, including video footage. And we're talking about <laughs> some uh, some giant skeletons that were discovered in one location. So all in all, this time around, we want to take a closer look at the indigenous history, the evidence that we can find from their stories, some artifacts Mm -hmm. that were really cool that we found too. And basically what's really important about this is how all of this provides a context for like pre-Euro historical foundation for the existence of Bigfoot Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. So before European contact, there was rich history of this creature, right? And so that's what we're trying to kind of bring in here. And then the reaffirmation of of uh you know colonization like europeans coming over and seeing and experiencing this beast for themselves right and that really obviously reaffirms its existence right and you kind of kicked you found some interesting stuff from lauren coleman who's been a great resource for us i thought this was really cool i I actually have a couple quotes here and the one i'll start with is from lauren coleman's book called bigfoot a true story of apes in america published in 2003 and he at one point in the book i can't remember this was like chapter two or three he was talking about um the the breadth of belief Mm -hmm. amongst different indigenous peoples and regions and all this stuff and so i thought this was really cool he says here quote in a survey of native traditions of bigfoot that mark a hall and i first published in 1970 we wrote 
quote. This is like an inner quote within the quote. <laughs> a vast folklore and a belief in the race of very primitive people with revolting habits is found from Northern California up into the Arctic lands themselves. This tradition covers not only the whole stretch of the Pacific coast, but much of the rugged territory to the east, even hmm. into Greenland. Mm -hmm. Generally, these hominids are described as very tall, fully haired, and retired, which I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're described as carnivorous, and that was page 26, 27 of the book. There. Interesting. Okay. Um, so yeah, very yeah. So he kind of speaks to the like I said already. It's just like this this wide range of this uh, phenomena. Definitely. And then as well, I thought it was very telling too. Um, there is clearly variations within these regional sort of interpretations of the phenomena. If, if, if this is the same and it could be variations and, and different things happening in different places, but right. this is cool. I got this from nativelanguages.org and they go into exactly that, the variations and something a little tinier. It's like little foot versus okay, big foot. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so it says here, quote, um, note that most of these legends, so Bigfoot legends, are told by tribes of the Pacific Northwest region. Northern California, Western Oregon and Washington State, British Columbia, Alaska, and the Yukon. Mm -hmm. There are also many stories involving wild hairy men of the forest in the plains and woodland tribes of the U.S. But... Most of these are forest dwarves, no taller than a human toddler. Right. <laughs> and then it goes on to say, in some native stories, Bigfoot may have minor supernatural powers. Mm -hmm. The ability to turn invisible, for example. But they are always considered physical creatures of the forest, not spirits or ghosts. Right. End quote. And so it's really cool, right? You get a lot of variation. Um, I didn't really dive too deep into the whole Littlefoot thing, but I did see other references in, in other forums and mm -hmm. stuff, people talking about this. And we do have a, actually, we have a reference that we can include for that. But um, yeah, it's just really cool. You get so many stories and a lot of these people will not openly talk about right. this stuff. So it's, it's kind of hard to actually get firsthand accounts. But a lot of these will tell of individuals and even groups being chased um being attacked in the form of having boulders thrown mm. um at them while they're say paddling down a river in canoe that right. was one um account and then there was oh there was one elder who had told jw burns which we did mention in part one he was right. that guy that really brought sasquatch to the forefront of the pioneer and settler imagination in the 1920s yes and um he had this one account from an elder who basically said he had to shoot one and he wounded it and yep. it saved his life, obviously, because he would have been like mauled is kind of how he phrased it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just um, exactly that. So it's it's these are fringe creatures that have existed and have a rich history like we already referred to in indigenous um, cultures. Definitely. And history. And that is such a weird like juxtaposition in size, right? To look at like little foot, little feet and yeah. evidence of that potentially mm -hmm. and sightings of that. And are these offspring of what would be potentially Bigfoot or is it a completely different subspecies of something? Yeah. Because then it's like, we get into like so many layers. Exactly. Right. Cause mm -hmm. we get just, like questions within a question within a question because we don't know what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And then we have marked hominids. Necks are different sizes. Yes. Other heights, varying colors in the fur. Like, and on top of it, you get, depictions of families so clearly right. mother father offspring so yeah. youth so and single what do mate these, what do these look like when they're born like are they just like a, 
a bigger than average human baby kind of thing. Like hairless? And then, oh, and that too. Like, or exactly. is it born with hair? Like, oh, that's a whole other topic. I mean, of there's the sexual side of Sasquatch, and there's a chapter I believe in uh, Lauren Coleman's book, and and there's been people who have done talks on this too because it is a legitimate question. In like, it when, is. You know, if it's actual creature, cryptozoological creature, not just like a paranormal phenomena. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can come back to that. Actually, <laughs> we should uh, get people's opinion. We should do a poll on Facebook. Who wants us to talk about the sexual side of sex? Yeah, that's right. Actually. Hit us up. I actually like that. It's we the, can do Sasquatch sex ed. And it'll be, uh, you know. With Conan O'Brien. With Conan. That would be priceless. <laughs> oh, my God. Who was he with in that segment? Uh, the guy that did um, Big Mouth. It's on Netflix Oh, yeah. Right Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll. Yeah, that would be good. Let's so, get into some of this origins and evidence, though. Sure. So we've already, we've dipped a little into the ancient past, and we wanted to pull up some evidence to kind of go with it, too. We we know that there's obviously, like, totem poles, masks that have been created um, representing Sasquatch, and all of these things are, like, just really unique pieces of an ancient history, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the more interesting ones, though, that we we came across were stone carvings. Um, they date between 1500 and 500 BC. So pretty old. Um, not as old as, obviously, the indigenous populations in the area who have been dealing with Sasquatch for much longer, Very potentially. True. That kind of places us at the end of the Bronze Age, kind of, hey? More or at less. The, at the earliest for date the, of 1500 Exactly, BC. right. Mm-hmm. But the, these stone heads, um, there's been a number of them. Like, most of the time, they're depicting creatures we know exist, like rams, bear, things like this, right? But there have been some found in the Columbia River Valley, so this is the area close to us here in Mm. BC. There's a series of them depicting what seems to be some sort of an ape. Um, And we'll put these images up because we really want to hear what you guys have to say. You know, definitively not a known North American animal, obviously, (laughs) right? Um, Definitely not a human either. And it's not the same as... This is kind of a weird, maybe, comparison, but it reminded me, looking at the image, of, like, the Olmec heads. Not because mm-hmm. it looked like them, but it was kind of like, is there a reason why this looks different, potentially, from the people that are carving it? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so the theories with the Olmec heads are that there was, like, West African um, kingdoms that, you know, traveled over in way ancient pre-Columbian past mm-hmm. and were maybe seen as, you know, gods or something, right? Right. That is that, yeah, uh, pre-Columbian transoceanic context. Exactly. Kind of so... Anyway, it reminded me of that because it's just really weird. And these things are about the size of a football and they're on display in the uh, Vancouver, Vancouver, Vancouver <laughs> Natural History Museum. I think that's what it's called. Or yeah. They're on display in Vancouver. So. Oh, that's interesting. You know, that kind of makes or brings to mind, I guess, uh, the well, Lost City, the Monkey God, the carvings of monkey heads that were found quite predominantly in there. Obviously, monkeys are endemic to that region. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes you wonder if at some point... Not at this timeline, though, like 1500 to 500 BC, that there could have been possibly... We would have a fossil record of that. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, there was no monkeys crawling around in North America. But nope. maybe, please someone correct me. No, there de- no, there definitely wasn't. Exactly, right? So that... I mean, that we like, know of, though, right? Like, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the Gigantopithecus, like, what crossed over in the Bering Strait and, like, what, mm-hmm. what could have been here and what and we'll get into well, all Well, exactly, that. too. But even just going back to my point about the monkey god, and obviously they had these animals right in their vicinity. So mm-hmm. you... You... What is it? How does Hannibal Elector phrase it? It's like... Um, you begin to covet what you observe. Kind of, he has this line where he's like, what you're around, you begin to covet because it's it's around you all the time. You're exposed to it. But this is obviously, it's more of like a veneration or, or even just 
not a veneration. It could be just a simple representation yeah. of something that they've obviously encountered. Well, that's actually, my... it's funny you bring that up because that's kind of what I'm moving into next year. Although I did want to mention too, oh. that like these heads did end up inspiring a lot of other artwork that was created over the next, you know, century or mm-hmm. so, like after they were first like unearthed or whatever, like rediscovered in like the 1800s. Mm-hmm. But there was, there's been masks created for a long, long time, but there was this one guy that was known for this, um, in the area of Harrison, 1930s, and he recreated these masks depicting a really, really detailed Sasquatch face and claimed that it was because of very real encounters. And the people in the area of Harrison Hot Springs, B.C., are it's one of the hotbeds of this mm-hmm. and they've been living amongst sasquatch for a long long time so anyway i thought that was kind of neat because it was just like inspired by the stone heads but to come back to what you just said like markers of where Sas- sasquatch are and because there's something to fear and know of mm-hmm. there are many many petroglyphs and we've mentioned petroglyphs before we kind of like messed it up in a w- an older episode in the, oh, our description of it right but um they're found all over bc down in, <clears throat> excuse me, down through Washington, Oregon, into California. And these are carvings in stone, in some cases well over 10,000 years old from North American indigenous populations. Damn. So literally like painting a comic book picture of an ancient past, right? Carving it out in the rock. Cool. So in Bella Coola, BC, this is on the north coast of British Columbia, there's these petroglyphs of Sasquatch heads that can be found drawn in the caves there and on rock walls. And this area is really known for Sasquatch encounters for like centuries and centuries. Just and the heads, hey? Yeah, Ooh. and there's other ones like it too. And th- these heads are really similar to other ape-like, like the actual stone carved heads of ape-like beans. Okay. Found in the areas of uh, the Columbia River Valley. That's really interesting. There's other ones in California and New Mexico, and these are super, super infamous, probably the, the most infamous on the West Coast. And they're picturing hairy creatures in what's known as the whistling face. And it basically looks like a rounded mouth, almost like a sock monkey kind of an appearance because of the representation of the howls, like the shrieking howls that will will be made. And so there's... Exactly. So there's speculation that... It makes a lot of sense. There's speculation, obviously, that these exist as markers for traveling in populations, right? Just to warn people that, you know, here's... Here's Sasquatch. Same with even, um, like we sort of briefly mentioned last part on part one, Mm -hmm. is the idea of like these skookum areas, like skookum regions, and how these would have been marked out by the people. So are you saying that these sorts of things would be found in as as those sort of skookum markers as well yeah or, that's okay. kind of what i'm that's that's the idea mm-hmm. anyway okay that's really cool obviously these are found more so on rock walls and caves i think i saw reference to maybe i'm, I'm not don't quote me on this but i i thought i saw reference to like say like uh, markings on trees that type of thing yeah too. um Obviously, stone's a little more permanent, though. Yeah, <laughs> last a definitely, year. right? And then, like, pictographs is the one that obviously would last not... It's still a ridiculously long time, but not as long as a petroglyph. Because and that's of where the fact that it's, it's dyed. dyed, yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you use, like, yeah, different natural ingredients. and But there's a lot of famous ones, too. Um, all the way down into central California, where the most famous ones are, and... The indigenous peoples there, they're they're full drawings, and we've we've oh. actually po- we posted one of these on our Instagram, I think it was, think where it's did, not yeah. just a face, mm-hmm. and they depict what's said to be eight and a half feet tall creatures. Okay, well that's right on the market. So it's a foot shorter than what we've sent seen as the typical max nine feet, yeah, a, a half a foot rather. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really unique, right? <laughs> 
Well, that's some pretty compelling evidence. I, I really like how this does really firmly establish a timeline that vastly precedes any sort of European uh, encounters or inhabitants on the North American plain. Yeah. Continent, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I love it. And now let's get into an abduction story. Yeah, we need a story. Bigfoot abduction story. Yeah, this was a really interesting one we pulled up, and it's it's quite old. Well, not not really really old in the sense thousands of years old, but 1871. Yeah. So this is like the days of Susan Allison coming out to pioneer in the Okanagan Valley. That's right. Pretty cool. So this story or account is <laughs> told by a young or a young girl well she was young at the time correct yes and, and this occurred in the 17th century like we said um actually sorry did i get that no no, no 19th century sorry so yeah she's a 19th century shahalis girl that's right her name was seraphine long and she went missing from her village and again this is from Near Harrison, B.C., so we've referenced this already. Really close to us. Very close. We, last spring, we were going to go to the Sasquatch anyways. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. But anyways, Seraphine Long, yeah, she she was kidnapped as an indigenous child, and she disappeared for about a year. Yeah. When she came back, she was far too weak to talk, and interestingly, that same night, she gave birth to a child but that child did not survive. Mm-hmm. We don't have an exact age for her, hey? She was um, she was 16 when she went missing, oh, I okay. believe, in so 17 when she returned. So there you go. Yeah. Obviously, of the age to yeah, be doing that kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> or be capable to doing bear it. a child, indeed. Yes, indeed. So this is really cool and kind of scary slash creepy, but she said, when she regained herself and her composure a little mm-hmm. bit, but she said that essentially she had been abducted by one of the, quote, hairy giants known to live in the nearby trees. So, forest dweller. She said that the creature had spread tree gum on her eyes so that she couldn't see where it was taking her. And so this was this occurred twice, when she was actually abducted and then later on. Yeah. So she actually went on to state that she was very well-kept and well-fed uh, by the Sasquatch and, again, his family. So yeah. we get this other reference to a familial sort of circumstance. Right. And, yeah, so she she was housed in a cave. She doesn't know exactly where because of the tree gum. Right. But she thinks it's probably in the area of Mount Morris in BC. Yes. Yeah. Again, she was actually interviewed much later, like, so this is decades and decades later, in the 1940s, and she was quite elderly mm-hmm. then. And she stated that she was quite glad her baby had passed away. Which, okay, so if she was abducted, spent about a year with these creatures, and then basically came home and gave birth on the spot kind of thing you it's kind of implying that she was impregnated by a sasquatch that's sort of what the story is implying Mm -hmm. which is pretty bizarre obviously pretty traumatic like she didn't actually get into any detail of how or when or what actually happened in that regard Mm. but pretty freaky and it kind of parallels it was the yaren episode that we did and that was patreon one wasn't it yes so our general audience would be as familiar, but uh, Yaren, the the hairy man of China, is kind of the wild man of China. Right. There was the instance where essentially there was a wild woman that was basically a Yaren 
captured and kept as like a kind of a prisoner not a prisoner but she was like kept as like a worker because she was like almost just considered like you know just like an inferior human yeah and she was impregnated several times too and born right. several allegedly hybrids. right as the allegedly legends go. yeah exactly Look, again this was quite that, that was that early 1900s I that's can't remember early exactly. and there were stories of that in russia too um oh, yes. and there were stories about mm-hmm. uh stalin trying to rumors kind of, of him breeding narrative. apes and they were trying to you know create a super soldier out of apes and, yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> it's like um, planet of the apes yeah but again right so that's not the only reference we've gotten to this type of thing is <clears throat> kind of just setting a precedent there definitely yeah so what do you make of that story i mean well, first and foremost, obviously, fans of Astonishing Legends will probably probably be reminded of the case of Albert Ostman, mm-hmm. which is another famous uh, Sasquatch kidnapping case. Yep. And they're not the only two stories. In fact, Sasquatch kidnapping and Bigfoot kidnapping stories are prevalent. Um, and we could do an entire podcast just on those, right? <laughs> on violent Sasquatch attacks, kidnappings. It's a very weird sociological question. When it comes to Sasquatch, you know, Mm -hmm. because especially with Seraphine Long, because she was returned. The story was, I think, like basically she was she was engaged to be married before she disappeared. So that there was a possibility that her being pregnant was from that, although Mm -hmm. it only takes nine months. So was it actually 12 months she was gone? We don't really know. Mm -hmm. But maybe she's not actually implying that she was impregnated by a Sasquatch. But the whole idea of Sasquatch is taking people. Why? Why? Is it from pure curiosity? Is it from, I mean, clearly they're not planning on like killing and eating. It's not like a hunting thing, right? No, it's Um, almost like an induction or like a, we could use some extra help around here. You want to go and get some guys? (laughs) Let's go round up a few of your cousins there. I (laughs) guess. Or is it, it's just like a weird thing that's like not even thinking. It's just like, oh, hey, I'm just going to grab it and go. And then I, and then, you know. If you want to be uber super skeptical, you could even just frame it as like a very weird anthropocentric, um, like delineation on the whole matter where if if you if you're going to take the stance that this is actually all made up and these people are just spouting tales mm-hmm. including Osman then it's again right it's just a, a very obvious human construction that is centered on an exciting thing that we would find exciting yeah. right yeah but i'm not discounting it by any means i think that this is this is certainly plausible because again right just because of the other references that we've come across well, and the people in her community believed her you know what mm. I mean? She wasn't shunned. Oh, yeah. And, okay. And another thing, too, just to go back to the whole, like, pregnancy thing and the fact that she said she was glad that she hadn't, the child hadn't survived. Yeah. Um, you would think you would want your child to survive if, if you knew it had been born by. You so think. the implication is there that something sexual happened. Right. But anyways, we're not a rape podcast. Or like, <laughs> yeah. <that> kind of <laughs> a cryptozoology rape podcast. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Hmm. Wonder yeah. what the audience would be for that one. Not really sure. Uh, Don't want to know. No, actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we never really did, though, Amber, was give, like, a really specific definition for Sasquatch. So, like, picture <laughs> Seraphine Long getting scooped up and taken away. It's essentially by... Like by a, a giant hairy hominid known for its elusive nature, unless it's kidnapping you <laughs> and its prominence in Pacific Coast indigenous folklore. So yeah, just reiteration here. Like there is quite a range of the 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 footage. Of these the footage, things. the tonnage, the footage, the tonnage, <laughs> ranging like literally could be the size of a tall human being. So six point five feet all the way up to fourteen, which is bridonculous in my opinion yeah that's not common no um but 
Yeah, wouldn't want to come across that one. No doubt. And these are massive, so they're weighing between 400 and 1,000 pounds. That's so big. So you're not really going to be able to break free from that abduction. No, even like Osman, right? Because people obviously were skeptical of his account. There's a few details that don't really line up as far as maybe distance traveled, where he ended up, all that kind of thing. But, um, oh my gosh, where were they going with that? Um, the, oh, just like the size, right? So like, but the fact is like, even if he was like, he was a frontiersman, yeah. he could take care of himself, but these are thousand pound, up to thousand pound animals. Yeah. So, or creatures. I mean, I don't even want to really call it an animal, like, even though I'm discounting animals. I love animals. So, yeah, well, I mean, you said the other day, animals. but you said exactly. That's what you said the other day, right? Yeah. The idea of trying to even delineate mm-hmm. there, like, and it, and it does matter when it comes down to the evidence and we're <laughs> going to. Again, get to that in part three. Mm-hmm. But anyway, de- definitely, definitely a weird interaction with Seraphine Long. So cool. We're kind of going back in time here now because oh, we have some cool. <laughs> fascinating, astonishing. We, we already did. We already covered some really old settler accounts in part one. Like we were in the eighteen hundreds. Yes. We found some other ones though, and we just wanted to like reaffirm to back up these indigenous legends and tradition. And this was these are all coming from like, real figures in history, you know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. not just, like, oh, a sighting from Joe Blow who lived in something, or, something. Or a group of random frontiersmen in the Okefenokee. O- 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 exactly. <laughs> Remember that guy? He's yeah. Like, it's just, like, okie-dokie. Okefenokee. O- Okefenokee. Yeah, there you go. That's not that. It's yeah. easy. Yeah, it's Why are we good. struggling so much with that? I don't know. <laughs> well, we came across a story by the ni- a name of a guy named David Thompson. It's not really much of a story, but he does make an, a, a report in his journal, an official journal that he kept because um, he was working as a surveyor and a fur trader for the Northwest Trading Company. So January 7th, 1811, he made an attempt to cross uh, the Rocky Mountains near present-day Jasper, Alberta. And this is a, a place where many Sasquatch sightings happen each year, and we've been there. Um, we stayed yep. at Emerald Lake, which is really close to Jasper uh, last winter. Yeah, we did. And we went cool. squatching. We didn't see anything thing but while we were there we're looking around and being like i mean this is the place to be you're not gonna run into a human being anywhere here really unless you're right at the resort that we were at which was in the middle of nowhere basically right but this is the note he made in his journal so january 7th quote i saw the track of a large animal has four large toes about three or four in long and small nail at the end of each so he's abbreviating his notes Mm. the ball of of his foot sank about three inches deeper than the toes. The hinder part of the foot did not mark well. The hole is about 14 inches long, eight inches wide, and very hmm. much resembles a large black bear's track, but it wasn't a large black bear's track. This was in the rivulet about six in, in about six inches of snow. I don't actually know what that word means. Hmm. Anyway. In the rivulet. Um, like a rivulet, I believe is, is like a, a miniature stream or river that can run alongside a stream. Gotcha. Don't quote me on that though. Okay. Either way, <laughs> clearly something that's not a bear track because bear tracks aren't 14 inches long, unless it's on a hill, which he's not describing. We talked about that in part one too, mm-hmm. which can elongate a track and make it look different than that's what it actually true. is. But 14 inches long, 18 inches wide, that's friggin' massive. Obviously. It's pretty impressive. And that's really, really on par with a lot of the footprints that we've talked about. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we posted a picture on Instagram the other day, too, of the various casts, plaster casts. Mm. All different sizes, but obviously, whatever we're dealing with here is 
And just FYI for everyone out there, a rivulet is a very, very small stream. There you go. Hey, <laughs> Amber. <laughs> yeah. You need to go on Jeopardy when they've got lots of small stream I questions. Jeopardy. We should do paranormal Jeopardy. <gasps> oh, that's amazing. That's actually a good idea. We should do that on the show. We should. That'd be amazing. Oh. Anyone who wants to bring play, people on? Yes. Shoot <laughs> anybody in and if you want to come up with questions. Contestants. Oh come up with them. Oh, I like this. I love it we too. We got something good cooking here. <laughs> we jump ahead a little bit now to another one that's really strange. Um, because we're not actually sure where it's being referenced. It's in Washington, but we don't know if this guy's talking Mount Rainier or Mount St. Helens, that we know is where Abe Canyon. Hmm. So 1840, Reverend Elkanah Walker Walker. So a pioneer American missionary living in the area of Washington state um, and wrote stories passed down to him by the indigenous peoples in the area of Spokane, Washington, about a race of giant, of giants, of hairy giants <laughs> living in the woods. Giant Harry's? Um, <laughs> giant Harry's, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Possibly living in the area of Mount Rainier, Washington. Mm -hmm. And these forest giants, this is, again, similar to the Yeren and the Orang Pendek and just kind of strange. These forest giants would sneak into the village at night and steal mm. fish the villagers had caught that day. Sneaky. Then, later, they would throw stones at houses. When the, tribe, uh, when the tribe's fishermen woke early in the morning, they would find massive tracks about one and a half feet long. Okay. So they weren't That's able to much. really, like, catch these things. Does that tie into the being able to vanish and disappear or be invisible when you mm. want to? Similar to Abe Canyon, like, doesn't clearly want them there but also yeah. maybe kind of needs them there because it just is going in to steal fish it's scavenging mm -hmm. strange right it's an opportunist yeah perhaps. we've seen that a lot of that so far too that's really interesting the <laughs> throwing stones at houses yeah, yeah that's and and the whole yeah again we get another um consistency with the footprints even though if it's Okay, so a foot's obviously 12 inches, so add on another six, so we're talking about 18 inches. Probably, like, I'd round that down to, like, 16 inches. So that's still in the range, right? It's in the range. Um, he had yeah. a quote here um, from his journal specifically referencing his conversation. So, like, it goes to, it says, They believe in a race of giants which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. This mountain is covered with perpetual snow. So they, the creatures, inhabit the snowy peaks. They hunt and do all their work at night. They are men stealers. Hmm. Huh. They come to people's lodges at night when the people are asleep and take them and put them under their skins and to a place of abode without even walking. Waking. Well, waking, rather. Sorry. So that's very much like Albert Ostman. Slung yeah. over his shoulder in a nap in, a, in his sleeping bag, right? Mm -hmm. Their track is a foot and a half long. They steal salmon from Indian nets and eat... Uh, eat them raw. Eat them raw, as bears do. If the people are awake, they always know when they are coming very nearby their strong smell that is most intolerable. Hmm. It is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles and then the stones will begin to hit their houses. Okay. So that whistles or really howls. I mean, so we've got descriptions of communication. We've got some weird sociological things in terms mm -hmm. of it's like they're banding together and they're throwing rocks at houses why? I don't know. Why? <laughs> and then we are with the, the whole kidnapping again. Right? Yeah. The, the coming into people's lodges. Like, they are men stealers. That's men stealers, an ominous yeah. description. The idea that they hunt and do all their work at night too. Um, again, yeah, obviously these are nocturnal animals. It just reminded me of the Menahune. I was, there. I knew you were going to say <laughs> that. And isn't this just funny? Again, we just keep getting these references to completely unrelated 
like mythological stories, paranormal accounts in a lot of in this world, right? Yeah, grand <laughs> unifying theory, people. That's so know. cool. <laughs> so yeah, the men's dealer is the idea that their habitat is snow peaked, so they live on a mountain of perpetual snow. I love that. It's kind of like bringing into mind like imagery of like abominable snowmen type things yeah. and how that could be tied, right? Like the uh, those things in uh, Siberia, maybe we're dealing with something similar here. Possibly. And again, like, okay, wait, I'm thinking now, like, is Mount Rainier a perpetually covered peak then? I don't think so. And you know where we had the Mount Rainier reference? Do you, do you recall? I'm throwing mm, it out there. Do you remember? I can't remember now. With, um, from our Maury Island incident episode. Remember the the sighting at Mount Rainier, Washington? Yes. Um, t- uh, a Kenneth Arnold. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cool. that just popped into my head. That's so neat. But I... it's obviously a super high mountain. Perpetually snow-capped, though? I don't know. Maybe in 1840. Mount St. Helens definitely would. Or would have been back then. It would have been. it blew up. I wonder if it still is. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely wouldn't, wouldn't have been when it erupted. But uh, 1840, I guess. Oh, man, that whole idea of, like, coming in at night, throwing stones at the houses, the whistling, the howling, like, that seems like a lot similar to the Ape Canyon incident. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Now, we're going to jump ahead another six years, roughly, where we have yet another incident, much like Ape Canyon, much like this one we just cited. Yes. But first, we're going to take a quick break from Coffee Gator, so let's roll that clip. Have you ever wondered what keeps Sasquatch squatching all night? He really does seem to have endless energy for his nighttime activities, throwing boulders, tree knocking, attacking cabins and such. Must be a double dose of coffee. Conveniently hot and ready to go in his stainless steel copper-lined thermal travel cup. Coffee Gator has many awesome designs and colors, all with the highest technology to keep your coffee safe and hot. Coffee Gator really does have everything you need to drink better coffee. I'd say they're probably one of the most innovative coffee companies in the business. Even their canisters have extra design features to keep coffee as fresh as possible, including a built-in CO2 valve that eliminates harmful attacking CO2 while keeping your coffee ultra-fresh, as well as protection from light, moisture, and oxygen, all factors that compromise the bean's quality before it's even brewed. And as a listener of the show, you can have the same awesome coffee experience as Sasquatch with 15% off your purchase using promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K. Visit coffeegator.com today and explore all the amazing options they have to get you drinking better coffee. That's promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K. And we're back. All right, so this incident that we are going to talk about next is, like I already referred to, it's very similar to the Ape Canyon attack of 1924, Mm -hmm. except this one comes much earlier. It's 1846, so one of the earliest written accounts. Um, And actually, you know what's funny, though? The Okafeniki one is earlier than that, too. Obviously, Mm -hmm. that was in the 1820s, I believe. That's right. But this guy, Alexander Caulfield Anderson, wrote in 1846 of his account during his exploration of the Harrison Lake area of BC, Canada. Anderson is said to have seen several, quote, wild giants uh, during his time in the area. And in one alleged account from him, uh, he and his party had to retreat from the area because stones were being thrown <laughs> at them from a nearby hillside. That's right. It's not rolled at them. They're being thrown at them. Yeah. And Sasquatch researchers say that Anderson and his men... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just 
<laughs> the Andrews and his men were stoned. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the stoning. <laughs> Just a good family stoning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like they have them like lined up. Like, like all I did was say Jehovah. That's so good. And then on the flip side, I'm picturing them just like hippy dippy trippy, just like woo. Yeah. <laughs> dazed just and confused. Like, oh man. Oh man. But anyways, yeah, so they were essentially stoned, not to death, but stoned, by a family of Sasquatch who yeah. seemingly entrenched themselves behind rocks on a mountainside. So that's kind of cool. They yeah. set up fortifications and they're yeah. like, this is strategic, man. Anyway, well, in my mind, I'd be thinking that. <laughs> I don't know what Sasquatch thing. <laughs> but anyways, some Sasquatch historians uh, even mention Anderson's letters to the Board of Management as references. But unfortunately, no one has actually found his report in the Hudson's Bay Company archives. Yeah, which is which is sad. It kind of makes you wonder if someone yanked it out of there or like because it was embarrassing. Oh, maybe. Like an yeah. odd, at an earlier date. That's, ha- you know, but it's I, tough I, to say. It is tough to say. And you know what's funny? This is the second time today that I've been not impressed with Hudson's Bay Company. <laughs> oh, I know. When we were shopping, that was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It was closeout sale 10%. <laughs> closeout sale doesn't even cover tax. No. <laughs> like, and great. I'm pretty sure they jacked up the prices before they put the sale price on. Anyway. <laughs> Ah, only we had some furs to trade and we could get something on a discount. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, very similar to Abe Canyon. Mm-hmm. Again, we've got these like throwing stones and just to, again, like be clear here, throwing stones for Sasquatch means like they're the size of basketballs and mm-hmm. footballs. Yeah. So like size of your head. Hundreds of meters in some cases, literally. That's, like, that's fatal if that hit you. Oh God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's like um, almost reminds me of the Mesoamerican ball game. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Deadly. Definitely. That was so funny when we watched Emperor's New Groove and they had like, or no, it wasn't Emperor's New Groove. It was the Road to El Dorado when they had the ball game in there. Yeah, but it was like just like basketball. Oh, it was so in that dumb. version, it was like so like wimpy. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Mm. Anyway, so stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, we've gone through a lot here and we're kind of coming closer and closer and closer up to like modern times, like mm-hmm. where we stand now, right? And on the North Pacific coast, including. I don't know if that's this, this actually includes BC, but definitely on the, the North Pacific coast, like Washington, Oregon, and Northern California, mm-hmm. there's around 550 annual reported sightings of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, whatever you want to call it, in these areas per year. And that's just what's rep- actually reported. Okay. So think about all the people that end up actually don't. seeing these things, you know, and, and, and just... don't report them. And obviously all the whatever potential sightings in passing where people don't even think they've seen that it's a black bear it's this it's that it's whatever right they'll discount it themselves just because they'll think oh i must be crazy right the last time in in part one we talked about the coining of the term sasquatch in the 1920s but now we've gone a little further with these indigenous stories and all that so but it wasn't really until the 1960s that this all really kind of hit the scene, right? Like Bigfoot. Bigfoot. 1950s, Like the pop culture Bigfoot. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is where I actually made a mistake in part one. Um, I was getting confused because in 1958, that's when the term Bigfoot was really thrust into the public consciousness, right? After the, the incident at Bluff Creek, California. Mm. So this is the same area where... Um, um, oh, the pa- Patterson Gimlin, I'm forgetting their first names. Right. Um, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin had their experience, right? Yep. So I got those dates a little bit mixed up. Oh, wow. But so <laughs> do that once in a while. <laughs> 1958, this crew discovered tracks of just massive proportion, right? And these are some of the most famous casts and images in all of Bigfoot lore and research. And one such print 
was to, and was photographed with Jerry Crew. He was the main guy running this construction site. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, infamous image of a giant prince stretching the entire length of his torso. And at some point, the crew didn't even want to actually return to the site. They were afraid of what was in the area. They believed that they were being watched. Although there is more to the story as a potential hoax, and there's some people who think it is definitively a hoax at this point in time. But oh, regardless, really? we're not getting into Bluff Creek too, too much in this incident. But regardless of whether it was a hoax or not, this is what thrust Bigfoot mm. into the public consciousness. It was the 1950s. That's very interesting. I, uh, yeah. A giant... Okay, that's so insane. It crossed his entire torso. Yeah. That's massive. So he's holding it up. Yeah, and it's like... So that would be... I mean, it's... it's You know, it's it's eight... It's a solid 20 inches plus. Like, it's massive. Just absolutely enormous. It's crazy, right? So Bluff Creek, California. That's right. So that's kind of like... Yeah. It makes you wonder what else the crew experienced... Um, to make them not want, like, if it was literally just that physical trace evidence or if there were other things. Because it does bring to mind even, this again isn't exactly in that same neck of the woods, but still West Coast, when we brought up the missing hiker from the Ape Canyon area in the 1950s. And how the search and rescue, mountain search and rescue people can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he essentially made the comedies, like, the entire time we were there, we felt like we were being watched entirely. Like, it was just yeah, it was creepy yeah. AF. And yeah, they they experienced it the whole time. And then he also referenced another time he was in the region and he felt the same way. So yeah, I don't think... I think that people... You know, it's easy for people to say that you're going to feel creeped out because you're looking for a hiker, someone missing, right. and you can't really explain the circumstances as to why they would have gone missing. Like, what was there, like, a friggin' unknown mine shaft they just fell into? The fact that they saw this evidence of him clearly scrambling away in haste was just... That would maybe set the tone. But, you know, I I still think that people like that tend... Like, search and rescue people. Like, emergency emergency responders have a very solid stamp... Not stamina, sorry. A psychological demeanor and all that kind of stuff. So they wouldn't really want to feed into, say, irrational... Irrationalisms, if you want to call them that. no. Yeah, so that's really cool. I yeah, so big boots, Sasquatch, they're hitting the big stage, and this was happening everywhere. 1950s British Columbia, <laughs> we get another, we get a reiteration of a British Daily Colonist article, kind of resurfaced, and this originally was published in the 1884. Mm-hmm. I love this because it's so. <laughs> it's just so classic. It's ridiculous. It is. It is. And it, it talks about a small, hairy, Sasquatch-like infant creature that was captured near Yale, B.C. and nicknamed Jacko by the press. That's right. And the <laughs> archives of the University of British Columbia actually had this article and quote-unquote revealed it to be very real. So it was really published, mm-hmm. but... Um, it doesn't mean that it was actually true. No. But in this article, it claimed that the RCMP, so the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, had held the creature in a jail cell until they could decide what to do. And in the meantime, like, people were paying admission fees. The article went off about, like, how they wanted to see this little jacko creature. And it was widely seen. However... On further investigation, the RCMP denies this incident ever occurring, and there is no record of such. No. And 
those who are long-toothed in the community, um, so they were around or either had family in the area at the time, um, were just, like, scoffed at it. It was outrageous. They denied it completely. They said, we're not even sure how something like this could have been published in unless it was literally like april 1st or something you know what i mean it's just a yeah. it's just an april fool's joke so in the end the legend of jacko definitely went down in history as a british columbian bigfoot hoax but it's a, it's a very classic example of say yellow journalism at best yeah, i guess definitely. i would say but it, yeah and it's actually interesting because it provides even if it is totally freaking fake <laughs> the idea of like again like these childlike Wildman slash Bigfeet, Bigfoot, sorry. Right. And, yeah. And it definitely speaks to, obviously, the Canadian consciousness and, and public awareness of this creature, this phenomena, whatever you want to refer to it as. Mm-hmm. It was kind of funny when I was reading through Lauren Coleman's book, the same book I referenced at the top of the episode, um, Bigfoot, uh, The True Story of Apes in America. He makes comment about the Jacko case and uses it as an example to kind of highlight the lack of critical thinking and thorough research (laughs) amongst Bigfoot researchers. And it's kind of funny because a lot of, a lot, I can't remember who he referenced right off the top of my head, but it was like the Ivan T. Sanderson's of the world. Like, you know, the people that were like preeminent scholars of of paranormal phenomena. And a lot of these people actually falsely included or published the story in their books, in their articles, used it as irrefutable evidence of the proof of Bigfoot's existence. And yeah. And so for me, yeah, I thought it was kind of funny that Lauren Coleman, he really took issue with that. And, um, definitely, uh, he, uh, he put that one to bed, put it to bed. bed. Right on. Yeah. Well, we're kind of, where are we at here? (laughs) I feel like, uh, I I really, you did mention the Patterson Gimlin story. I think we should get into that a little bit. Sure. So, I mean, it was nearly 10 years after the the Bluff Creek incident when the best evidence yet, arguably, kind of surfaced. So Roger Patterson, accompanied by Bob Gimlin, went in search of Bigfoot at Bluff Creek, California, 1967. So right in the same area, obviously, of this, the original 1958 Mm -hmm. Jerry Crew photograph um, Mm. and the original Bigfoot cast taken there. Of course, they get this infamous footage. The Patterson film. The right? Patterson Gimlin film. And everyone listening to our show is familiar with this, right? Like, they you guys be. know this, I think. Most and people would be, right? Must be somewhat familiar with Roger Patterson and hopefully Bob Gilman. Like, Bob he, is still with us, correct? He is, yes. And he was actually, I just read this recently, he was one of the first um, Native American, oh, what was it? He's like a Native American guy that um, decided to kind of pursue Bigfoot through like the official research organization or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Roger Patterson, I don't know as much about him personally, but then we did uh, reference him in the first bit of yeah. our series when we were talking about Abe Canyon and how heavily influenced Roger was when he talked to Fred Beck, who had been part of that Abe Canyon incident and later wrote about it and published that pamphlet in the 1960s. Right. So that was kind of my, um, that's my familiarity with him. Like, do you have anything to add to that? Well, that's kind of the most, the, the most significant thing that I think people end up obviously using to discredit uh, Patterson. But Gimlin just kind of falls by the wayside, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, he was, he, he didn't want to be in the limelight when it happened, I don't think as obviously as much as maybe Patterson did, or maybe he didn't. Right. And that's the question. And that's why it's, it's, you know, 
purported to, to be a potential hoax mm. that he was super interested in Bigfoot, right? Like he was a Bigfoot researcher. He was potentially right. looking, like he was going looking for so the creature. So he was kind of like a Raider Ron in that sense, where he had his premises. He wanted to find a specific conclusion. Sort maybe. of. Maybe. Or maybe, but that's just it, to disprove <clears throat> or prove the existence. Like that to me isn't having too much of an agenda. Of well, no, an agenda. just because you have some, an interest and you research something doesn't mean you hoax mm-hmm. the evidence that you are obviously trying to get exactly. in, your, in your quest, right? It's kind of a weird sort of... Um, but people do use it against them, right? right. The, the fact that he was tr- trying to, you know, get on the scene, basically. Mm-hmm. Get on the Bigfoot scene. So what did they actually get footage of? Well... How I would mean, you describe it? Okay, well, I mean, yeah, I, we, y- y'all have seen it. But it's essentially, he stumbles to capture the image of what is essentially a, what appears to be a over-the-hump-of-middle-age female Sasquatch, Mm -hmm. Bigfoot, that is, clearly was getting a drink by the river or something like that, creek, Mm -hmm. and Bob Gimlin infamously keeps calling it a crick every time, every interview, we were walking out the crick, and that's like, (laughs) it's sort of weird. The crick? um, And it sort of walks away from him. Uh, Patterson stumbles to over a log or something. Then he's on his knees, stabilizes himself, and he ends up capturing a pretty good image of it, walking away, Mm -hmm. and it takes a look over its right shoulder. It's about, oh my gosh, it's between 12 and 15 seconds worth of footage of the actual creature itself. And it is kind of shaky, but it is very, I would say it's actually quite clear. Um, And... We've seen other versions of it where it's essentially been stabilized, so you can kind of follow the trajectory and the walking pattern of the creature that's being depicted. Uh, You said female, right? Because you get these large, pendulous breasts that are very clearly (laughs) seen um, protruding from the side of the creature. Very heavy in the hips, eh? Like a very, very matronly looking Sasquatch is kind of how I would phrase it. And it's yeah. got what they described as like a ridge on uh, the craniums on the top of the head. Yes. And as it's walking away from the men. Okay, so basically what happened, the just that I get of this story, like the backstory is that they were in the woods uh, hiking around this area on horseback. Both of them were on horseback. They come over this ridge or like come, ac- come around a bend kind of thing and see this creature spotted at Bluff Creek, essentially. Y- yes. Patterson jumps off of his horse to capture footage while Gimlin stayed on his horse. And allegedly, he says himself, he had his gun trained on this creature the entire time. He was ready to shoot if it actually turned on them, but it didn't. No intention of doing that, really, obviously. Like, no, they're not only if they to... were threatened. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of how he phrased it, in Lauren Coleman's book, at least. Yeah. Well, he and... No, he did say that in later interviews. Exactly, well. yeah. exactly. And so after they actually get this, like, 12 to 15 seconds of footage, they actually pursued it for a few kilometer miles, right? That's kind of the gist I got. They tracked it for a few miles, could mm-hmm. never catch up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, which on horseback? It on horseback. I mean... It, we don't, we've never been to Bluff Creek. Mm-hmm. We don't know the exact terrain other than like the general description, right? So yeah, anyway, yeah, it's, um, yeah, they tracked it for a few, a few miles, but we're unable to do it. It brings up the questions of whether or not, it brings up the questions of interdimensionality really to me with Sasquatch, oh, right? And the spirit okay. aspect of this creature, because they mm-hmm. were both, I mean, Gimlin was a trained tracker. And they knew where they they knew what they were doing in that area. You, you'd think they should have been able to track a creature that, at the time, Gim, Gimlin estimated to be 350 pounds. And then when they were looking at the footprints and the impressions, it was 
no, 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 it's more like 800 pounds. So then my next question is, if that's the case, and they were tracking this, but they were not able to catch up with it, I'm not going interdimensional. I'm going with this thing smart, because it actually did glance over its shoulder at them. You see that in the footage. And then, so obviously it's aware of them, correct? And so my question is, hmm, maybe this thing's a lot smarter than they are, and it could have potentially backtracked, covered up its trail to some degree, maybe it had a hiding spot, like a hole or a pit, like, you know? And, and I am, yeah, obviously we are talking about professional trackers, I'm not going to discount their skills, right. but I'm just saying, right, if these things have been able to, <laughs> to yeah. remain in the fringes as they have, then totally. you would think they'd have some means and oh, some absolutely. methods. Oh, and, absolutely, and there's obviously even people who, like, if you... I'm just thinking about myself trying to walk through the woods and like, I'm not, I'm no ninja and no tracker and I'm not very good at hiding mm. either. Mm. <laughs> so I'm probably the worst, but, and my ankles crack when I go upstairs. So I like couldn't be an assassin You're hopeless. Like, at all. I'm completely <laughs> hopeless, but literally for an 800 pound, eight foot tall, cre like the, a creature the size of a moose to go into mm. the trees away from two and trackers and not a single leaf out of place, broken twig, footprint, nothing. Mm -hmm. after that basically that i'm aware of like we we're, we didn't after that first few miles after coming. that first mm -hmm. little bit and they just lost it completely mm -hmm. that's really crazy right like that implies such a level of high level of intelligence to evade humanity like they're smarter than us yep Right? I mean, well, I, I am, I'm definitely of the mind that they are a lot more in tune with their surroundings, yes. a lot more environmentally aware and thus have gained a sense about their place in the world and a sense of their place in this environment that far exceeds our capabilities in these areas, right? Do you think it's possible that they could have even just walked right past it? Yep. Like it walked into 100%. the woods away from them and then literally just like went into some sort of a stoic position yep. leaning against a tree or some crazy thing. Because they say that about the Oring Pendek too, right? They do. Literally, if it freezes, it's just gone. You can't see it. It just blends right in. And oh man, there's something, uh, there's something very ominous that's to that very too, freaky, right? Like man. you're tracking something and you're walking, man, that's like prime for well, a movie scene. I'll bring up another quick example here that I actually wasn't going to include in this part too, but I think it's actually kind of relevant to this particular conversation. Uh, in the 1950s, there was, oh, actually, sorry, sorry, not 1950s, I believe it was 1970s. Don't quote me on that though. And I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it was a psychologist and he gained widespread media attention for his encounter with Bigfoot, where essentially what happened was he was walking, hiking, doing a day walk with his family through the woods. He goes for a bathroom break. So he's squatting in the woods. He literally said like he kept his family in eye line at all times so he could watch them because mm -hmm. they were pretty far out there. And then next thing you know, he, f he felt or saw something out of the corner of his eye. He looked, he saw a massive creature and it literally just went from behind one tree to the next and disappeared, like behind the tree. But he saw that it was watching his family just like he was. And so he flipped and he just like, I don't even know if he finished his, his job. There's, uh, he finished his job. His it's, like job. it's like you're talking to our dog. I right know. Now. I'm just <laughs> trying to keep it. Keep it sanitary. <laughs> I was taking a dump, Amber. All right, he was on. taking a dump, but anyways, I don't know. That's there's something just so paranormal about that to me. That such yeah. a massive creature can it. That's like that's like predator, mm, right? Like that's like bit. you're you're going through that. You have this crazy shimmering camouflage, and you can Perhaps. literally just go from a. 
yeah, hide behind a toothpick if you want to. Exactly. That's like, kind of how we described it. And it was kind of unfortunate too. Like we can talk about this case again when we get into the larger meta themes of Bigfoot and how it's evolved over the centuries and decades and all this kind of stuff into modern times. Mm-hmm. But he got a lot of attention and he was... Uh, yeah, media outlets um, poised him as being very credible, right? Yeah. He's a psychologist. He l- works in an office all day. And then it was just frustrating because on Lauren Coleman's part, when he mentioned that case, he was like, oh, yeah, so we're just going to discount hunters, trackers, outdoorsmen, farmers, people that are interacting with the natural environment on a day-to-day basis. Media just discounts all of that, because but they'll the latch on to a psychologist. Yeah. Because he's got a PhD, man. Credentials, anyways, that's all. Even though it's uh, ironically like a severe lack of credentials right is what it you is. just said it is but yeah yeah and and this was caught the attention of people north of the border too and shortly mm. after in november because this happened in the fall you're talking about patterson Gimlin, yeah right? yeah sorry yeah. going back to gimlin patterson um this whole kickoff of the bigfoot craze mm-hmm. and they they hopped up north because obviously big bc being prime sasquatch research territory at university of british columbia and they were actually interviewed um by a cbc reporter and had their footage analyzed at ubc in vancouver oh, no um, so in that same year so i just thought that was kind of an interesting canadian connection and you can get the full um you know the full uh, word for word of that interview on cbc we have the link we'll have cool. it on our website i added this in um kind of last minute because we I, I just found it really interesting and we've seen this guy before in 2009 the footage was reanalyzed, and it's been reanalyzed a million times. Oh, yeah. And I remember this, this was interesting because there's this guy named Esteban uh, Sarmiento. He's been, or Sarmiento? Mm-hmm. Sarmiento. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> Close enough. We're so sensitive about pronunciation now because people have been like, you guys suck at pronouncing things. And we're like, pronouncing things. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I know. We know. <laughs> we really, really know. <laughs> Sorry, well, Let's guys. just not get stuck on it. <laughs> but um, he's an anthropologist, ape specialist, hominologist, works for right now the natural history museum in new york but he's been a professor and things like that in the past and brought on monster quest and various other documentary series looking at cryptozoological cases and stuff and he looked at the film and basically what they did is they brought in a couple of different athletes as they called them i think they were volleyball players judging by my estimation they didn't actually say Mm -hmm. but they were quite tall um slender and basically they tried to because they figured that height wise that would match and they tried to recreate the walk um in the Mm, film because there's this very strange hitch um motion in the knee during the step that to some people they would say that that's like a person trying to like pull up a costume with each step like keep it up Um. right like you're trying to lift it with each step trying to walk in a heavy suit basically Mm. but it still doesn't make quite it doesn't make sense. It's not a natural human walking it's motion. It's not a natural human walking motion. So they, they went through a bunch of different video angles of this and these two dif- these multiple different people trying to recreate this. And essentially what Sarmiento came up with was that, yeah, like this is clearly not the walk of an ape mm-hmm. and definitely not the walk of a human. Mm-hmm. And um, even just on top of that, like, yeah, the walk is huge. That's really important. But the other aspects of the... The subject of the film, if you want to call it that. The idea that there are no visible seams. There is no uh, visible... Like, it, there's no bunching of anything anywhere like that you could probably pick out if it was a costume. This thing would literally have to be, like, the highest grade, top-notch, custom-fitted movie suit. Like, you know, like, movie-grade... Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes suit. Yeah. And the only thing I can think of off the top of my head that would closely match that is what we saw in 
Uh, was it 2001 A Space Odyssey? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but even those were very clearly men. Like, you could just tell. Well, of course. And, you know, there's people that go way further into this than we planned mm-hmm. on in this. We have a bunch more cool stuff we want to get to. But, like, there's a few names that people, like, I think it might even be in Coleman's book. But anyway, there was a few costume makers at the time that worked on Planet of the Apes, that worked on 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And they totally said nothing to do with it nothing to do with it and Um, on top of it that's the best costume i've ever seen if it's a costume i I feel like later on there was someone that came out and said they made it but couldn't prove it and there's a a lot of people that have come on said they were wearing it but couldn't prove it either exactly you know they'd say oh Mm -hmm. that was me but then they could they had no idea where bluff creek even was how to even get there so they don't have the details it's like well i hope you had a ride home that day because it would have taken you a while then (laughs) you know what i mean like (laughs) anyway yeah that's that's a good point though. though i like that um Um, because I think there's a lot to it. You have to have a really weird complex if you're going to go out and fake, like, I guess if you're trying to fake an entire career, that makes sense. But like, say if you're the person that literally was just dressing up in the suit, like, what are you, what are you getting out of that? I don't don't even know. Paycheck, I guess, from the person say, hey. From Patterson? Like. It just, he, like. On a straight, char- like, I feel like I'm a ju- good judge of character. Like, I, they, they just don't seem the type in mm-hmm. the interviews, especially Gimlin, unless he was duped, too. Oh, yeah. Because then that's the perfect fall, right? Look mm-hmm. at this perfectly innocent man who is a tracker and who kind of, like, did the classic, like, Homer gif, like, f- going into the bushes, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> after this all started to blow up. Exactly, yeah. That kind of makes sense. But then that's, like, me jumping ahead and jumping ahead and jumping ahead. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, like, that's just my, to- like... You can't prove it, and it doesn't seem likely. Really good evidence, though. Still mm-hmm. remains to this day. Hotly debated. Let us know what you guys think about mm-hmm. the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film. Yeah, give us your take. And actually, I think uh, Astonishing Legends might be talking to Gimlin. I thought I saw that on Twitter. Oh. They had, might have a chance to speak with him in right. California somewhere, yeah, so that'd Scott be really cool. Looking that. forward to seeing what those guys come up with. <laughs> we wanted to talk about a really modern day, some, some locales where Sasquatches dwell. Mm-hmm. where you guys can actually go today and basically be guaranteed to have a Sasquatch experience. What? And Where's our tickets? When can we go? <laughs> that's, that's just it. I was just going to say, we haven't gone yet mm-hmm. to these places, and we live very, very close to them. Mm-hmm. This particular locale, we're not that close to. It's on the north coast of BC, and the location of the the ancient peoples of the Kitasu First Nations. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. How, how else would you pronounce that? Kitasu. Yeah. yeah. It's Kata- be. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I mean, they've been there for a long, long time, people. So, like, ancient ancestors, they've been harvesting herring and halibut for tens of thousands of years. The bay lies on the ocean side of Swindle Island, so opposite of Klemtu Island, which is a village on mm. British Columbia, the pine-forested, like, remote inland passage. So when you look at this on a map, it's really crazy because it's like, we've never been to the north coast of BC. I've been to Vancouver Island, but that's not the north coast. Um, no, and, I've never um, been past that either. And it's crazy because it's like, this is on the ocean, but when you look at it in terms of like how far inland, actually like inland it is, because there's just these crazy canals and estuaries and like yeah. gnarly islands and like you have to go through these crazy Definitely. windy passages to get there. Like it's And you know what's insane. really cool about all of that is uh, when I was studying geography, I actually learned about how BC was created. And because we, well, BC was... Oh, well, how many thousands of years ago now? I can't remember off the top of my head. But essentially, BC is made up of what's called accreted terrains. And cool. if you want to think about it, it's almost as if 
<laughs> you know, like plates, you know how subduction occurs when a plate slips below a different plate, like mm-hmm. a tectonic plate. Mm-hmm. So essentially what was happening is there was a subduction zone that was gradually pushing an oceanic and a, oh my gosh, like a continental plate up against the Canadian shield. Oh, okay. And so you got, that's how we created the Rocky, we, that's how the earth <laughs> that's created the Rocky Mountains. And that's why we have so many um, mountainous ranges in BC mm-hmm. and how they're all in the same general how would you even say like they're at the same general aspect they all kind of like it's almost like a crinkling of um of a tablecloth that's what it looks like yeah exactly and and that's why we get so many of these sorts of like estuaries and like very uh, lots of islands and everything in this area it's really cool but anyways continue on no that's no i love that you know I know how much you love geography, so it's nice to pepper that in. And, and uh, I guess that would be like... I need to go and do like a, a refresh. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting a lot. Yeah. So, super remote place though, right? But we're still dealing with like crazy dense pine forest, like carnivorous forests, right? Mm-hmm. Carnivorous forests. <laughs> carnivorous. Carnivorous. It's man-eating <laughs> forest, man. Damn, actually, if you could have a man-eating pine tree, that'd be gnarly. Just like those... Pl- like those big spike trees <laughs> yeah. fall into it and that's they swing it. down and spike you <laughs> but obviously for you guys can probably guess that's not a home to a lot of people so Clem 2 across the way um, is population of about 350 people but it's been known to be a very reliable place for seeing Sasquatches and it's hmm. actually been frequented by people like Les Stroud and that's who um, sh- first of all would shout out to Matt Drew because he sent us uh an article that I'm using for part of this and then some stuff from Les Stroud because he actually went there a couple of years ago um, in search of Sasquatches too. Oh. So that's Survivor Man for all of you guys out there. I was there like, that, that name's so familiar. What yeah, is it? Yeah, the, okay. the, that guy who goes out in the crazy places by himself. <laughs> Not like Bear Grylls who has like a whole TV crew, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, <laughs> so they, they've been there for thousands of years. These human-like creatures have always been said to be living in the trees there. Okay. It was their ancient territory, and to the people living in this area, it, it still is to this day. Mm-hmm. So the belief in Sasquatch is essentially akin to a belief in black bears, especially for those who have actually, like, hunt them and go <laughs> out just... in these remote places and actually end up seeing Sasquatches, which is a large portion portion of the people that live there. That's really cool. The elders, So normalized, eh? It's like, just imagine that for a second. Like, if that was so... It's just bizarre. It's like walking out and maybe seeing a deer. Maybe you see right. one one day, maybe you don't. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah that's a deer. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> and you just stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. The elders of the Kitasu First Nations people tell stories passed down through oral tradition. And they speak about Sasquatch both in an allegorical setting, talking about, you know, places you shouldn't go. And those types of stories, like when we talked about the bunyip and things mm, like that, where they're mm-hmm. more allegorical. Mm-hmm. They range from that to very literal experiences and encounters with their past elders and, and ancestors with these beings and places where you physically just don't go. Like there might as well just be a big no trespassing sign up there <laughs> because you're going to get a basketball, basketball-sized rock thrown at you if you oh, go there. Oh, that's always nice. So this entire area we're talking about sits at the base of British Columbia's Great Bear Rainforest. So it's about 40,000 square mile expanse of essentially completely intact temperate woods the largest one left in the entire world whoa forty thousand square miles pretty crazy oh that's so neat and that actually includes like the great bear rainforest has the world's or the, has the besides polar bears it's the world's only um completely white bear yeah the spirit, the spirit bear. bear yeah that's right and they're super super rare and they're living amongst the sasquatch mm-hmm. and probably just as rare as sasquatch if for these people they probably see them almost equally <laughs> 
the terrain is not just dense with trees and mountains, but like deep fjords, love that word. Um, fjords? <laughs> yeah, it leaves space for whales and stellar sea lions, sea otters that can get crazy far inland. There's old growth forests, so giant red cedars, home to grizzly bears, black bears, the rare spirit bear, like you mentioned. It's just one of the most remote places in the world. And Beautiful. a perfect place for Sasquatches to hide Sounds and like never be found. Sounds like an amazing place to be. Um, massive sections of this Great Bear Rainforest, too, are protected from any exploration. And this was because of a historic agreement between the First Nations people there and the BC government in 2016. So relatively recently, but just think about that, just in the sense that like, even if people wanted to go looking for Sasquatch in certain places, they can't. It's literally a protected hmm. Sasquatch habitat. So I guess this area doesn't... It doesn't have any pipelines going through it then, I would imagine. No, it does not. And never will, by all accounts. Hopefully. Hopefully not. We would definitely do everything in our power to prevent that from happening, support the opposition of mm. that in the Great Bear Rainforest. That would suck. Yeah. Anyway, there's some really cool stories associated with this place too, as you can imagine. So early summer 2001, this this whole story came is a, is a mashup between an article sent to us by Matt Drew again and Les Stroud's experiences with this guy named Doug Nieslis, who was Canada's first licensed Indigenous bear guide, and he's now the elected chief of the Kittisu First Nations people. He's a counselor, stewardship um, director, resource, resource stewardship director for the region and all that kind of stuff. So he's out in, out in the bush, and he's obviously familiar with the terrain, right? In this first story, he told them it was one of the most ex like scariest experiences of his life. He said that he and four other companions were fishing in the bay, and they were camping on just a typical trip. And they basically set up camp, sat around the fire, having a typical conversations. But as things were kind of, the fire was kind of dying down and conversation was settling, he noticed something that's what seemed to be half of what was like a human-like face, partly <laughs> hidden behind a large tree that was further up the beach. Uh -oh. <laughs> and he kind of just started staring at it and just stopped talking, like didn't answer a question from someone. And the others turned and looked too to follow his gaze and tracked where he was looking and saw that he was fixed on something that he was just trying to understand. He couldn't, this was the first time he had seen a Sasquatch, I guess. <laughs> and they all kind of caught a look of it. They looked toward the figure. So it, it at this point appeared to be crouching in the tree line mm -hmm. and locked eyes with them. And at, at that moment, the Sasquatch stood up and this was his direct quote. He said, it was huge, at least seven feet tall. The footprints after the fact were about 15 inches long. And he remembers the creature slowly backed into the forest out of the firelight and, quote, disappeared. I've had humpback whales come right up under my kayak, but this was the scariest moment of my life. Ooh, that's spooky. Because you can't explain it. You don't know what you're looking at. No. And it's the abject. That is me. really interesting. So they had physical proof, hey? They had the footprints. I don't think they took any casts. Like, they didn't have mm. plaster, mm -hmm. but they did see, They did have footprints and multiple people see them. That's insane. So the elders, though, like, when you, when, when you talk to the people there, the typical encounters in the stories that go way, way back, this is their description of it. So, like we've been talking about, obviously, tall, hairy creatures, but a few different characteristics, like long black fingernails... <laughs> so I guess that would be a characteristic you'd expect, but we don't, we haven't really heard that in other That's stories. That's a lot of detail. You'd imagine you'd be right up close. You'd be hand in hand. Potentially, like, you know, like, right? How else would you see that? Well, that's the thing about oral tradition that's not necessarily always written down. It's this, like, a memory. Mm -hmm. When was the memory? You know, was it a time in a t thousands and thousands of years ago when there really literally was people 
trading with these ancient beings, like handing stuff over, like literally that action, you know, and then there's that memory of these long black fingernails and thousands of years later, that's, I don't know. It's pretty nuts. But yeah, the other thing is like dark eyes and obviously bipedal. So So that's pretty young. Yeah. Usually seen standing on the beaches or peeking out from tree lines. There's another guy who lives in the community. His name's Vernon Brown, and he's the stewardship manager, resource stewardship manager, um, works d- directly alongside Nislas. Mm-hmm. And he had, his quote was, the creatures are called uh, pukwis or baguis mm. in their language. So words that also describe ape-like appearance. So they have like multiple <laughs> meanings, I guess. Pukwis or baguis. It reminds me of pukwiji. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say. Uh... Also, maybe like the K's and those kinds of sounds like skookum, they're all Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, you can tell a little bit like what the meaning is after you look at a bunch of words like that associated with Bigfoot and Sasquatch. You know what I mean? (laughs) Start to get familiar. The elders, he goes on to say elders warn against going to certain places that are, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, but called Willaboo Quis. Something like that, (laughs) which translates to where there are Sasquatches. Okay. Many people know the stories, even if they don't talk about them very much. Um, they were seen, they were seen more often when people would travel and harvest food or material resources, basically in their ancient past, right? Mm -hmm. So when they're interacting with their environment. Yeah. He goes on to say, even if people don't see them, they know Sasquatches are around by certain signs. One is the sound of tree knocks, which is something that we're familiar with, obviously. When Sasquatches want to protect their territory, so specifically when they're looking to fend, get people away, right? They'll also throw rocks as warning when people are too close to their favorite clam or cockle beds. Another clue is their repulsive smell. I've smelled bears and they stink, Brown says. But around Sasquatches, I've smelled something horrible, pungent. It'll stop you in your tracks. And then all of a sudden, he snaps his fingers and it's just gone. That is bizarre. And for me, <clears throat> a lot of people do make this connection. I'm going to make this connection right now th- with the whole odor, the foul odor, usually described as completely repulsive, obviously, but usually sulfuric, uh, usually, you know, like farty, like that type of sound like, or, or skunky, the skunk ape, you yeah. know, that type of thing. Yeah. And uh, that to me is a loose tie in with other paranormal phenomena in the form of, say, like hauntings, like. Yeah. Um, Just weird, bad smells. Yes. I feel like that ties into when there's a portal involved, <laughs> oftentimes. Plasma and goo and, and bad then, smelling things. And then as soon as know. it's gone, <laughs> the s- smell has been sucked back into the portal. <laughs> right. But I also don't want the li- you guys listening to think that I'm not like going like cryptozoal. I, I, I do think Sasquatch is a creature. I guess I that should be our final debate, hey, whether or it not. It kind of will be, right? Yeah. But there's evidence for both. Of course. Right? We can. We should do a debate. I'll take one end, you take the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, you can see that entire article that we pulled a lot of this from, and uh, there's a few more quotes that go on, but these are the most interesting ones, but we'll have mm, that up in our yeah. resources. And there is similarities in... Bellicula. So again, that is just a little bit further up the coast of BC. Mm-hmm. And... In SasquatchCanada.com, they, or is it .org? I can't remember. Uh, they reference a very similar sounding creature, which is referred to as the Bok. And that's B-O-Q. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. That kind of maybe loosely ties into the Bokwas, 
Hey, like bog, bogwies, like the, uh, the yeah, we just mentioned up at the top there. And then there around. was the one from the Micmac. I feel like sounded similar to mm. that. Let's get a little bit on the bok here. Sure. Okay. So there's a quote here from from Sasquatch Canada. It says, "Boks are large, hairy, wild men of the forest. In the folklore of more northern tribes, such as those from the area of Bellacoola, BC." Books are often portrayed as malevolent, dangerous monsters who may even eat people or molest women. Okay. But in Chinook or Salishan versions of these legends, books are sometimes depicted as more benign beings. Sometimes books are also called by the name Skookum, uh, which we're already really familiar with, yeah. and is a word from the Chinook language meaning big, swift, or powerful. Uh, this is sometimes a source of confusion because skookum has been used in Chinook literature to refer to many different sorts of powerful beings, not just box. So right. obviously, aka Sasquatch. Right. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that connection that's, there. Yeah. And that's just been the general trend, right? When you go into the indigenous lore and you go into the different databases that you can find online, at least, you do see just an amazing amount of different names to describe very similar phenomena. But then within that, you do get the differentiations between say something like this where they're like, it's malevolent. It's going to eat you. And then we're benign, all this kind of stuff. Right. We even saw that with like fairies, definitely, like, you know, like indigenous forms of fairies and all that kind of stuff. But oh yeah, they can be nice. They can be nasty. Yeah. It just kind of depends. Yeah, it does. And I feel like what, oh man, there's so many questions when it comes to this because we're dealing with such a long period of time. Like when you bring that up, it makes me think like, what's happened to the deteriorated relationship with these ancient beings between the existing indigenous peoples today, potentially, right? Mm. Is it because of when, like it wouldn't have been just from European contact, like things must have soured early or something like, or I don't even know. Just like, diverged. Diverged, yeah. Mm -hmm. And now it's... Just so far gone. So it's... far gone, but we still get these places like Bella Coola and like other places on the north coast of BC where they're just so prevalent and it's still right there. Mm -hmm. It's still just right there. And there's a place that's even closer to us that we've mentioned before, Harrison Hot Springs, that has sightings every single year. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if we're going to get somewhere, we're going to get there sooner rather than later to Harrison and um, try to bring you guys some really cool content. There's Sasquatch Provincial Park at Harrison Hot Springs, which is really, really cool. Um, I pulled out some information just like straight from their tourism website because it's actually really interesting because there's caves involved um, <laughs> and we love our caves. So basically the home of the Harrison Sasquatch and other locations where there's some sightings are the caves of mystery that are on the west side of Harrison Lake. And local lore says that the Sasquatch hold a reunion there Ooh. every four years, beginning on the night of the first full moon in July. So for four nights in succession, as the Sasquatch meet, there's apparently signal fires that were kept burning. And 1940 was the last time the fires were seen burning and actually reported. But then apparently there's been sightings in the area as recently as 2009. What? Um, so the resurgence. That is really strange. I kind of skipped over a, sec a section there. I know you're maybe looking at me a little strange because it's essentially the same stuff we've been talking about. <laughs> but... Um, because we've already we've already mentioned Harrison with the story of um, Seraphine Long, and we're familiar with the area. You know what I mean. Mm -hmm. But that I just thought that was so weird. This obviously the idea of creating fire. Yeah. So that's very that's Orang Pendek territory, maybe Yaren territory. Like at least knowing how to use it, maybe not necessarily make it. Well, I mean, we already to scavenge are, it. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got the people. We've got the North Sentinelese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to make it. 
which is crazy. Well, allegedly. We don't really know the state, but as far as we are aware, they There's no evidence they harvest that... fire from like lightning. lightning strikes and all that kind of stuff and then keep it burning yeah. in trees as long as they can. Like right. inside the hollow of a of a dead tree yeah. kind of essentially. So setting signal fires implies you know how to use make flint basically. Mm-hmm. Like you know how to start fire. Yeah. When you want to. Or at least they're so powerful that it doesn't matter if they're using flint, they could just be smashing two rocks together and right. it'll eventually... There's like, so many angles we can go with that in terms of speculation and talking about stuff. Like the mm-hmm. idea that if you know how to make fire, the likelihood that you are a carnivore or right. an omnivore that leans towards meat as your primary source of food. Not that they actually cook it, supposedly, Ma- because they've been seen devouring raw meat. Raw meat. So mm-hmm. that's sort of a weird potential crossover there. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. I'm going to just open up the, the link here because I didn't want to copy paste the whole thing. But it's basically like warning um, warnings to follow when you're entering Sasquatch territory around Harrison Lake. Okay. And they take it super seriously. Um, they kind of have a little bit of a joke at the beginning, but they're, they, they're very serious and they, they pepper in other stuff too, because they want you to not leave out food for bears and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But it goes on to say things like, you know, if you're camping in Sasquatch territory, don't leave food or snacks out as it will attract not only Sasquatches, but bears and cougars. You'd want to avoid angering Sasquatch by playing loud country or folk music because Sasquatches apparently like classic rock. That's their little joke. (laughs) But then it goes on to basically say, like, if spotted in a distance, do not approach Sasquatch. Attach your telephoto lens, take a picture, then make a wide detour and leave the area immediately. Mm -hmm. If you're at a close range, do not approach a Sasquatch. Remain calm. Keep the Sasquatch in view as you slowly get out your camera to take a picture and then leave immediately. <laughs> they just are uh, all about the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, try to get a picture, right? Avoid mm-hmm. direct eye contact. Like, uh, so don't anger it with right? that, because that, yeah, okay. Um, and then they go on to say, too, whatever you do, shoot only with your camera. Harming a Sasquatch or any other endangered species is a criminal offense under the Species at Risk Act. Mm-hmm. And even though the Sasquatch is not officially listed, it's unofficially listed. Nice. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to include, because... They take it quite seriously, because what if you do run into one? Well, exactly, right? Yeah, and even, it's funny, because you could just play it off. It's like, oh, no, they're just, that's just everything you would do if you saw a bear. But, aside from taking the picture, obviously, but... It is everything you would do if you saw a bear. It It is, it is, is, it is. (laughs) But just to keep it interesting, I guess, maybe it could be a a tongue-in-cheek where they just want people to pay attention. True, I think that that, is, I think it's 50-50. Yeah, but then at the same time, this area... It's very, very Some well of the most known. prominent Sasquatch researchers in mm-hmm. the world uh, have lived there and do live there still and run like Sasquatch tours. You can go there and go on full like outback remote tours you, and you stuff. You can even go and explore some caves that yeah. have been uh, referred to as Sasquatch caves. Sweet. And yeah, it kind of ties into obviously all these old traditions of Sasquatch inhabiting the area. And these are known as Sasquatch caves. Why, Andrew? Because Sasquatch were said to live in them at one point. <laughs> so there wasn't any actual physical proof in these caves. Other than actually to, you know what? I, it's not included here, but I, I feel like there was some cave art at one point that's no longer there. Mm. Very much like the cave drawings at Christina Lake um, that used to be on that, the jumping rock, uh, the, the rock where people would jump yeah. off. They're not there anymore. You can't see them. When I was a kid, they were there. Right. I think it's just local lore that they were the, the, the hiding place of Sasquatch. Okay. Well, that's kind of funny, though, because I do have another example of Sasquatches and caves. Cool. And this actually takes us outside of Windsor, Ontario. And we're kind of going back in time here. We're going to the 1950s. All right. And, okay. 
So this is really kind of bonkers. And brings up again, J.W. Burns, that Burns. guy that was so famous. Well, mm-hmm. not so famous, but famously credited with sort of bringing Sasquatch to the limelight yeah. for settler sort of populations. And so essentially, he, he said that he received a letter. And it was a couple decades after the event. <clears throat> but essentially, this was from an Ontario, a self-described Ontario lawyer slash notary public by the name of S.A. Wallace. And he relates how back in 1949, he discovered what appeared to be a cave containing the skeletons of over 40 Sasquatch. Mass well, grave. Let's just call them giant... Harry upright, upright. I can't even say it. Upright humanoids. Crazy. Uh, yeah. And so I, I just thought this was really bonkers. Like forty Sasquatch, <sighs> and That's... it's it's kind of vague, right? Because in in the article, it was I believe it was a Vancouver Sun article. Either that or it was another Canadian publication. Okay. And and they just kind of described the account. So it didn't even come right from the horse's mouth. It didn't come from J W Burns, but. I just thought it was fascinating. And so I was like trying to dig in, dig, 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 and couldn't really come up with where these skeletons went, who this uh, S.A. Wallace actually was. Mm-hmm. If he, like, I wish, honestly, we should just get like one of those um, ancestry.ca sort S.A. of things. S.A. Wallace. S.A. Wallace, a notary public in the Windsor, Ontario region. If anyone has ancestry.ca, just go look that up. <laughs> we, we, have, we know but, a few people we could ask. Yeah. Anyways, I just thought that was very interesting and lends itself to the idea that Sasquatch treat their bodies with intent and care after right. death, performing rituals, other ways of disposing of the dead. Again, this brings up a lot of parallels to even the Lost City of the Monkey God series we did, where it was like, these are revered places, these places of the afterlife, caves, right, caves and the underground and all this kind of stuff. So for me, I was just like, wow, that's a beautiful little tie in there. Yeah. Well, and, I, and even with goblins, we talked about caves as transition points and the ideas yes. of, mm-hmm. of, yeah, exactly. beyond spirituality. It was really interesting, too. There was a geologist that examined these skeletons and dated them approximately to be, well, very approximate. He dated them in the thousands of years range. Okay. Didn't actually say how many thousands. So, but, like. But they were <laughs> described as very well preserved. So, to the extent that they were referred to as being mummified. So, and, like, first century A.D.? Roughly. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know that works. Okay. But mummified. So I'm thinking, like, wait a second. Is there hair fibers? Is there any, like, is it literally just the skeleton then? Like, right. I'm picturing, like, Tutankhamun's tomb or whatever, but. <laughs> Did you say Tutankhamun? <laughs> Tutankhamun. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> You're just putting words in my mouth. I'm sorry. I'm you sorry. did that last time. You said, you said that I said. What did you say that I said? It was <laughs> the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. <laughs> I said the Royal Canadian Mounted. Duh. Apparently, I have to say Mounted duh, in order for Andrew to get that. Uh, well, just his head. Forest cops. <laughs> forest cops. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Sorry. Getting back to the Vancouver Sun here. It was a 1957 Vancouver Sun article. So it was okay. roughly a decade after because this gotcha. J.W. Burns supposedly discovered these skeletons in 1949. Reported so. by J.W. Burns. S.A. Wallace. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. S.A. J.W. I know. Well, that's the thing. I was going to say the S.A. Wallace and the whole like looking him up on Ancestry. That just reminds me of the Kincaid's Cave episode of Astonishing. Where it's so vague. Is it G.E. or J.E. Kincaid? And it's like anytime you see just the initials as the first name, it's like, man, that sounds made up. 
I know. S.A. Wallace. I know. So for me, there is parts of this that don't really, I haven't been able to really tie them up as far as whether or not it's, it's factual tough, or not. Right? And it does sound like one of those classic, like, men's Pulp Fiction magazine stories. Potentially. Where it was, like, this crazy find that somehow time. no museum seems to have a record well, of. Well, they never want them. They never want to take it, even if they do have yeah, it. Well, Smithsonian doesn't want to look at the Skookum cast. You know, oh, you found a Yeti hand? We don't even want to see it. No. Get out of town. Like, I, I thought this was interesting, though, in the article from Vancouver Sun. They said, like, they had actually talked to some of J.W. Burns' neighbors, <laughs> and they were questioning them neighbors. about his continued belief in Sasquatch. And to which they actually replied, oh, he might have believed back in the day but I don't think so anymore, was kind of one of his closer neighbors and stuff. He was described as a school teacher, too. He was. Yeah. yeah he was a school teacher in the area of Mission, B.C., and kind of in the mm. interior there a little bit, and then moving up to the coast. So they never actually got a sound, a sound bite <laughs> in 1957. They never got a statement directly from Wallace, but it was kind of just a little expose article just featuring him. Interesting. Yeah. So what do you make of that? I think that, well, I mean... If it's true, obviously that brings up a ton of interesting questions because the whole argument, one of the main arguments against the existence of Sasquatch is the fact that we've never found a corpse, right? And even though we've said in other episodes with the Bunyip, with other, any cryptid case, Mm -hmm. the things like the wood buffalo or, I can't, I always mix up if it's bison or buffalo. The bison. You know, existing for hundreds of years, never seen. These creatures weigh over a thousand pounds, right? They were gone. We thought, no. That, so there's that. Or, Apparently not. Yeah. There's there's so, or like black bears. There's hunters that have been. They go out every. They they've been hunting their entire lives. They've never seen a deceased black a bear yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. They've never once seen or or any other large animal for that matter, like a moose, just dead. Right. And like, it just it's it's almost insulting to think that you would just find a corpse yeah. unless it have to be really unfortunate circumstances where this creature died unexpectedly, like fell down, was or by or like, itself, yeah, was unable to be located by its kin or its family or whatever community it's involved with. Yes. And that would be the only case for me where it would be like, that's an acceptable find. But even then, right, you would have to imagine, like, I'm thinking if I was one of these things, I would be on constant vigilance, constant lookout, constant survival mode, almost to the extent where you're almost living in a quiet place. You know what I mean? Like the movie, A Quiet Place, where you're you're just constantly trying to avoid the mess of human civilization. Yeah. And yeah, and all for of the what most is, part, though, exactly, yeah. until you let out a terrifying guttural scream, wailing thing that yes. just sends people running down the beach because you're trying to get them away from your territory. Exactly. So exactly. you're okay so, with being known you're there, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you don't want to be seen. Exactly. It's almost like a top, like secret service agent or something, like yeah. women in the woods, James Bond. Sasquatches are the ultimate forest James Bonds. Yeah. Forest cops. Forest cop. Conan. Forest cop. We're just going to reference that all the time now. I mean, yeah. that's kind of wrapping it up here. We are sort of wrapping it up Mm -hmm. for this part two. Mm -hmm. This has been really fun. It has been really fun. We found a bunch more stories that we didn't really expect to come across. Mm -hmm. And there's so many places that I just really want to go to now at this point, right? Like we need to go to the In North coast of BC. Yeah. we got to go to Bella Coola. I mean, these are just beautiful places to visit in general, if you're not mm-hmm. interested in Sasquatch, but the idea of doing some wood knocking and getting a response. That'd be pretty epic. Would be pretty special. And we would love to bring that to you guys. So that would be really cool. We're saving yeah. our shekels. Mm-hmm. So any final thoughts? 
what are we getting into for part three? I mean, obviously some conclusions, Ooh. right? Like yeah. we want, or if we can call them that. Mm-hmm. We have all the theories, and there's a bunch. So of them. many theories, um, <laughs> and even just like there's larger meta themes to talk about. Like yeah. I referenced, right? Like the idea of the changing face of Sasquatch in pop culture, or in right. or the, the, con- the public consciousness of this phenomenon, how it's mm-hmm. changed over time, uh, and then of course the debate: Is this a cryptozoological phenomenon? Is this paranormal? Is this interdimensional? Is where, it an ancient well, where are we going with this? Is it an ancient ape? Is it? Is it? What is it? Well, exactly. <laughs> so we got a lot of fun stuff to we got a lot to go through. to conclude with in part three. Definitely. Thank you so much for listening to part two, all y'all. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys, and, and um, as always, yep. Shout out to our producer Charlene Ramler, mm-hmm. our Patreon producer. Thank you so much, Charlene, <laughs> and uh, to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much, and thank you everybody who listens to the show. We really yeah. appreciate you guys. We love y'all. Yeah. And um, let us know what you think of this part two, what you think of the Patterson Gimlin film. Mm-hmm. So hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Into the Portal Podcast on all of those things, at Into the Portal One on Twitter. Exactly. Um, join our Facebook forum. Um, send us an email if you'd like that instead, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. We love yeah, yeah. emails. And then as always, you can go visit coffeegator.com, use our promo code CORK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, and you'll get 15% off of your purchase sweet deal <laughs> yeah it was a sweet deal i'm really enjoying our french press oh god i want to get more stuff from them without coffee gator the show would struggle it would struggle <laughs> it would. so go check that out and Caffeine thanks again guys Google. we will see you um, again very soon <laughs> see you later on the minjay later on the minjay <laughs> <laughs>